Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an expert in geriatric medicine explains why it matters so much that Upstate Medical University now has a department devoted to geriatrics. It's probably one of the newer specialties in the United States although it's been in Europe for years and years. An emergency physician shares his new book about infectious diseases, which is part textbook, part graphic novel. Being someone rooted solely in the sciences, being exposed to someone um, with so much interest and background in art, for me, I was fascinated by it. And we'll hear about a study of ultra-marathon runners that looked at whether exercise recovery can be accomplished with beer. You have an excess of water in your body and, and you you have a beer and you find yourself having to urinate, that flushes the kidneys a little bit. I also think that there's probably some additional benefit to that. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from an emergency physician who's put together an illustrated book on infectious diseases. Then we'll talk with another emergency physician who has done research on ultra-marathon runners and beer as a recovery beverage. But first, Dr. Sharon Brangman explains why it's significant that Upstate now has a full-fledged department of geriatric medicine. Upstate has become one of only a handful of other academic medical centers to have a department devoted to geriatrics. For the past 20 years, the branch of medicine dealing with the health and care of older adults has been a division at Upstate, and it was led by Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's a SUNY Distinguished Professor and a former president of the American Geriatrics Society, and she's a leading voice for the care of the elderly across the nation. She's here with me in the studio today to explain the significance of this change. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. So the change from division to department, it's not just semantics. No, uh, a department has uh, a broader reach and a different mandate than a division within a department. So this is actually a very exciting time for geriatrics. What does it mean um, to you and your colleagues that work in the department? And then I was going to ask what it means to the to students and patients and... Well, I think it's a recognition by leadership here at Upstate Medical University that geriatrics um, is an increasing need and will be so for many decades ahead. And geriatrics actually touches all areas of medicine and surgery because older adults are increasingly the primary uh, group uh, seeking and receiving health care, not only in central New York, but across the country. So we have Americans who are living longer than ever, and as we live longer, we start to need more and more medical services. And so that's why geriatrics has a broader reach than just a division. Okay. Well, what can you tell me about the growth of this geriatric patient population? Well, the number of people who are turning uh, 65 has been increasing well, we always talk about the baby boomers, and those are the people who were born between 1946 to 1964. And um, those baby boomers, we have been growing uh, exponentially. So about 10,000 turn 65 every day, and that's going to have an impact for the next 20-plus uh, years. But within that segment, the fastest-growing uh, 
uh, population are those who are 85 and older. And that's important because when we start to reach our mid-80s, that's when we have to deal with the complexity of having multiple medical problems and a decline in our physical status and sometimes our cognitive status. And the whole concept of frailty comes into play. And frailty is um, now being recognized as a biological state where the body is starting to decline and we, le we lose our cushion to respond to stressors such as illnesses or surgery. So it's really important for physicians, whether they are medical doctors or surgeons, to understand how uh, an 85-year-old may respond to standard medical care. And it's different than someone who's not 85. It's very different. Younger. So a 40-year-old may need a whole different approach than an 85-year-old. And that's what's important. And that is the challenge because um, many people who are in practice right now never really got geriatric training as mm. in, in their residency programs. Everyone can take care of older people, but they may not understand the specific skills that come into play. Now, how old do, does a person need to be 65 to see a geriatrician? Is that the age cutoff? Well, or? in general, about a generation and a half ago, 65 was deemed the point when we get older. But now a 65-year-old that I see now is totally different from a 65-year-old from a generation ago. So in general, geriatricians tend to take care of the oldest old and the ones with the most medical problems. So for the most part, people who are 65 are still out. Many of them are still working. They're involved in their community and their families, and they're doing pretty well. But by the time most people eat, uh, reach their mid-80s, that's when a geriatrician tends to become involved in their care. Okay. But then there's plenty of people 65 and up who are seeing internal medicine doctors or family care practitioners or getting sure. their care elsewhere. Sure, and that's appropriate as long as geriatric principles start to come into play. And whenever someone has a memory problem or there is a suspicion of dementia, then it doesn't really matter what age you are because some of the issues that come into play overlap with geriatrics in general. So what are, um, because I've read that nearly all of the people over age 65 have some chronic disease and maybe more than one. What are the ones that you see most often? So the most common chronic diseases that we see in older adults are some of the diseases that are just based on wear and tear of living a long life. High blood pressure, which tends to increase as we get older, and then that can result in certain heart conditions or lung conditions. Uh, diabetes is increasing, especially in older adults. Um, high lipid and cholesterol levels, which then has impact on heart and brain health. And so these diseases then can impact your brain, heart, kidneys, and your circulation. We see arthritis and chronic pain syndromes. One of the things that is most intriguing is the piles of medications that people start to take as they get older. And many of these medicines were tested one at a time in relatively healthy people. But as we get older, we start to take more and more pills, and they start to interact with each other. They start to interact with an aging body, and sometimes we see side effects that are all due to medications. 
So that's another piece of what we look at when we're dealing with older adults is are they on the right medicines or are they on too many medicines? And what evidence do we have out there that these medicines are are causing more good than harm? It sounds like this patient population, there can be a lot of complications and it probably needs someone really with some strong oversight to take care of them. So as most people know, our medical system focuses on specialty care, meaning people go to a doctor who has a specialty in one organ system. So it is not unusual for, um, for a patient to go to a cardiologist, a lung specialist, an eye doctor, um, a rheumatologist, or an arthritis doctor, an orthopedic doctor. And each of those doctors are excellent in taking care of their designated organ system. But we don't exist as separate organs. We are one body. And so there has to be someone looking at how all of these things fit together. And sometimes while we're taking care of one problem, we're making something else worse. Makes sense. Well, is it true that Upstate has plans um, to sharpen its focus on treating and researching um, Alzheimer's? So we are designated as the Upstate Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease, and we've had um, a a long history with uh, diagnosing and managing Alzheimer's disease here in central New York, and we are the regional experts um, in this disease. So we are now, with the help of a local philanthropist by the name of Sam and Carol Nappy, have um, started the Nappy Longevity Institute with one of its main focuses being on Alzheimer's disease research and brain health. And that's going to be housed within the Department of Geriatrics. And it fits very well with our focus in our Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease, which is already working to identify People with memory loss, that's something to worry about. Educating uh, the next generation of healthcare professionals as well as practicing healthcare professionals so that they can understand if uh, dementia is part of their patient's uh, list of problems, what to do about it. And then to participate in uh, research, finding some of the new science that might help treat this disease. Well, that's exciting. And I don't want to get too far off on a tangent about Alzheimer's, but in the news recently, there's been coverage of some new medication that supposedly can reduce plaque in the brain of patients um, and slow the progression of dementia. Is that... uh... So one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease is the buildup of, of abnormal proteins called amyloid in the brain. So there is a focus in research on drugs that can break up this plaque. And it's not clear if the plaque is the chicken or the egg. Is it causing the problem or is it the result of damage to nerve cells? But the theory is, is if we remove this plaque, this may help um, restore brain function to people who have dementias. And so this drug that was recently mentioned has been in the news for that. And we are also starting a clinical trial in a few weeks for a a similar drug that will be a plaque buster. And I'm excited about this because we have this opportunity now in central New York to have people participate in a clinical trial without having to go to Boston or New York or somewhere far away so that there's ready access. And people who have Alzheimer's disease uh, often 
don't have the ability to travel all these distances and that adds another stressor to the whole um, sure. disease process. Sure. I'd like to remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's an expert in geriatric medicine and the former president of the American Geriatrics Society. So let me ask you why more academic institutions, um, why don't more of them have departments devoted to geriatrics? I think that um, most institutions don't have a department of geriatrics because there hasn't been a sense that geriatrics was a specialty in and of itself, uh, at least initially. It's probably one of the newer specialties in the United States, although it's been in Europe for years and years. So there was a prevalent feeling that, oh, I have patients who are 70 and 80. I take care of them, so I do geriatrics. Why do we need a specialty for that? And I think over the past few decades, there's been a realization that there are specific skills for, um, for managing older adults. And then creating a new department is very expensive, and that is a big commitment on the part of institutions. So there have been a handful that have focused on that and worked to m- meet that need. Uh, but the majority of geriatric programs in our country are divisions either within internal, internal medicine, medicine or family medicine. Okay. Well, you found um, over the course of your career that, I mean, taking care of this patient's population is fulfilling. And I wonder what you would say to those in medical school or those who are thinking about medical school that might make them consider going into geriatrics as a specialty? Well, geriatrics, actually, geriatricians have a high rate of job satisfaction. And if you look at surveys that are done among physicians about um, specialties that have the highest rate of job satisfaction, geriatricians are frequently close to the top, if not at the top of the list. So I think that people that go into geriatrics uh, have a, a, a passion for taking care of older adults They uh, respect them, love to hear their stories, because if you live until your 80s or 90s, you're a survivor, and that means you have overcome lots of hardships, and those are always interesting to hear. Uh, People interested in geriatrics love complexity. They love solving problems because we are dealing with multiple problems at the same time, and so you have to enjoy that complexity. In fact, um, we have been given the, nick- the nickname of complexivists because we enjoy working with people where you may not have clear yes-no answers and we're dealing with a lot of variables. You have to enjoy working with families because most older adults come in either with a spouse or adult children or other family members, and so family dynamics become an important part of it. And then you have to also enjoy teaching and talking to others about geriatrics because even though it has been in this country for now almost 30 years, it's still considered a newer specialty and there's still a lot of questions and opportunities to teach others about it. In other countries where um, geriatrics has been a specialty longer, are there more uh, professionals involved in geriatrics? So yes, um, and most other countries have a broader base of people, uh, physicians especially, doing primary care. And in the United States, over the past few decades, there's been a shift away from primary care to specialty care. 
And that's to the detriment, I think, to our healthcare system because everyone needs a doctor who can help be the kind of like the switchboard to make sure everything is running well and that you are seeing specialists appropriately. And specialists have an important role in medicine, but um, that information needs to be filtered so that we can make sure that all those different moving parts are coming together to help the person be, function at their optimal physical and mental abilities. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this. It's great to know that we have a department devoted to geriatrics at Upstate now. Um, my guest has been uh, Dr. Sharon Brangman, a distinguished professor and now the inaugural chair of Upstate's new Department of Geriatrics. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, a chat with the author of a book that's part medical text, part graphic novel. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Jim Howe. This is HealthLink on Air. A physician from Upstate has a new book out, but it's not the conventional educational textbook you might imagine. It looks somewhat like a comic book, or maybe more specifically a graphic novel. But it's full of technical information about infectious diseases, broken into 14 sections. Here to tell us about his book is emergency physician Dr. Brian Kloss. Welcome, Dr. Kloss. Thank you for having me. Your book is called Graphic Guide to Infectious Disease, and your name is on the cover with Travis Bruce. How did the two of you work together in this book? So I first met Travis in uh, 2000, so it's about 18 years ago. Um, after I graduated from college, when I moved uh, back home to New Jersey, I got my own apartment, and one of my neighbors um, was this uh, young man, um, Alex Seldes, who went to art school. So it was... Um, interesting collaboration is that you're having someone with a science background now uh, interacting with someone with an art background. And through Alex, I met Travis and a host of other uh, folks that do such things as um, industrial design, fashion design, illustration, and graphic design. And being someone rooted solely in the sciences, being exposed to someone um, with so much interest and background in art, for me, I was fascinated by what these individuals do as far as using their artistic process to explain things and uh, share information with the world. And they were somewhat fascinated with me being a scientist or a medical provider and having this background in medicine and disease. Did you write the material then send it to them or did you collaborate in person? How did that work? So Travis and I, as far as an author and illustrator, have an amazing uh, relationship as far as how we collaborate. He you know, can quickly see what ideas I'm trying to convey in my illustration and then translate that up into a more professional and detailed illustration. So how we went about the process was I would identify different diseases that I had an interest in, such as uh, viral hepatitis or Zika virus, look up on uh, various medical references, textbooks, and journal articles more about the disease, 
come to a, um, a synthesis as far as what are the signs and symptoms of the disease, how does it appear in the human population, how is it spread, how is it treated, what's it caused by. And then from there, I would draw, uh, you know, some illustration or cartoon of a human infected with the disease, or in some cases, if it's a disease that's carried by an animal, I might draw an animal with the disease, such as anthrax, is carried by sheep. So in that case, the illustration is of a sheep with all the signs and symptoms of anthrax as how it would affect the human population. How did the idea for doing a medical book that's illustrated instead of with standard medical illustrations, illustrated as a comic book. How did that originate? This goes back to one of my first interactions with Travis Bruce. We were at a house party in Brooklyn, New York, and you know he had told me about his illustrations and says to me that he really hasn't illustrated that much in the past couple of years because he doesn't really know what to draw. And I said, well, let me see this um, sketchbook of yours. So I'm going through his sketchbook and in there was an illustration of himself as a, a high school student stating, when I was younger, I could rattle my eyes. And he had drawn his eyes uh, shaking back and forth. And I said, oh, this is actually a medical condition called nystagmus. And I said, it happens in some people that are alcohol intoxicated or if someone is on angel dust or PCP. And he was fascinated by the information. He said, oh, write that in, in you know, the, the book. Write it right on top of my illustration. And I said, well, you know, wouldn't that then kind of ruin the illustration? And he says, no, this would actually then kind of conclude the illustration or make it complete. Um, and as well, this horizontal nystagmus can also occur in about 10% of the population uh, as well. So I, you know, put that information in there. And having done that and looking at it, I recognized, wait a minute, you know, we can combine my medical knowledge with your illustrations to educate um, medical students, physician assistant students, nursing students about these diseases and make it more memorable for them. And that actually, at that point in time, is where I got the idea to come up with my first textbook, which was called Toxicology in a Box. So in that book, I had taken about 110, 120 illustrations that I'd created about various types of poisonings and drew them out and now our second textbook, which actually has a broader audience because it's on infectious diseases, does the same with about 140, 150 different infectious diseases and then illustrates them out in a cartoon representation. I should note that, the yes, as you say, the book has plenty of standard medical text along with the illustrations, and we will link to the book uh, from our website, uh, healthlinkonair.org. Is infectious disease something you have a research or professional interest in particularly? Is that why you chose this topic? So with infectious disease, the um, interest in that is the fact that it's sort of the foundation of medicine. So infectious diseases can occur in um, infants, um, adults, elderly, geriatric populations. And a standard knowledge base of infectious disease is the cornerstone of medical education. So if uh, someone's in medical school or going to school for being a physician assistant, they're essentially required to learn the foundation of infectious disease based on what the causative agent is, whether it be a virus, bacteria, or parasite. And then in this textbook, what I've done is uh, broken these different infectious diseases down um, based on what organ system they involve. So I have a whole chapter on pulmonary infectious diseases. I have a whole chapter on the infectious diseases that affect children, such as measles, mumps, rubella, and as well some of the more common viral illnesses that affect uh, children like chickenpox. 
And then I also went on and looked at some of the infectious diseases that are carried by specific um, vectors. So uh, example being uh, Lyme's disease is carried by ticks. So I have an entire chapter on tick-borne illnesses. Did you learn anything new in pulling this book together? Um, putting the book together, a lot of this was uh, in some ways a refresher because again, the knowledge of infectious disease is you know required for all physicians. Um, but as well, I learned um, about newer infectious diseases or learned uh, greater detail about some of the infectious diseases such as uh, mosquito-borne illnesses. I learned a lot more about Zika, uh, dengue, and uh, chicken gunion as far as these different uh, you know, mosquito-borne illnesses. Would you say this is meant to be a reference book for medical providers like yourself in an emergency department, or who is this really aimed at? So the market demographic for this book is both for healthcare professionals and then as well for any layperson that's just interested in infectious diseases or someone that's interested in comic books because the quality of the illustration that you'll see in this book actually goes well beyond anything that's ever been done before and it has sort of a graphic novel approach. So this is something that medical students and physician assistant students could purchase to actually use for studying for their classes to, again, learn that foundation of infectious disease, signs, symptoms, treatment, causative agents of the infectious disease, and as well, anyone just with a general interest in the human body and what types of diseases we might potentially contract as we you know, go through the uh, life process. Would this book apply internationally or is it more specifically directed at the United States? So the book is actually available internationally as of now. So it does have sales in the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and as well, India. Um, turning to your work as an emergency room physician, roughly what percent of an emergency doctor's patients would have some sort of infectious disease? Percentage-wise, um, I'd have to look that up for a reference to get the actual percentage. However, um, infectious diseases are things that are commonly encountered in the emergency department. Now, most of the infectious disease that we'll see tend to be things such as a community-acquired pneumonia or a urinary tract infection or perhaps a skin or soft tissue infection. And those uh, are things we see that have a specific presentation, whereas the infectious diseases that I discuss in detail in the textbook, these are... Uh, some of the more common ones, but also some of the more esoteric ones. So some of the more common things that we see might be Lyme disease, for example. So emergency medicine providers need to be aware of the signs and symptoms of Lyme disease, and it's a condition that can create um, chronic signs and symptoms, but even still, even though it's a chronic disease, many times through the emergency department is where the patient comes to be diagnosed with Lyme's. Example was a uh, patient of mine, maybe a month or two prior, had come in and complained that his left knee had been red and swollen for about a month. And looking at it from an emergency perspective, I have to consider what are the things that could be devastating to him, such as what's known as a septic joint. Is there bacteria inside the knee that could cause him to then potentially lose his leg? So I do the testing for that, but then also recognizing, well, the knee's been swollen for a month that actually could be, you know, late onset Lyme disease. So we actually sent off the Lyme disease test, uh, blood work and titers, 
and he actually tested positive. So I was... Titers being a blood test. Uh, correct. Yep. The blood titers said this gentleman does test positive for Lyme disease. In the emergency department, I uh, ruled out or took this septic joint off the table, but was able to then recognize that this is you know, likely a presentation of Lyme disease in the later stages. So my awareness of Lyme disease helped me to make that diagnosis and get that gentleman started on the appropriate treatment. Can all or most of the infectious diseases described in your book be prevented through standard hygiene, such as washing one's hands and properly handling food? Many of these diseases actually can be prevented through you know, proper uh, food preparation, and sanitation, hygiene, and as well, vaccine. So many of these diseases uh, can be prevented by uh, vaccine. So example, there's vaccinations available for both hepatitis A and hepatitis B. We have vaccines for measles, mumps, rubella. There's actually vaccine for the human papillomavirus, which can cause later on in life uh, cervical cancers and uh, oral pharyngeal cancers or cancers of the throat. Many of these diseases are actually preventable just through proper sanitation and hand washing. Um, again, myself as an emergency medicine physician, I also travel internationally and lecture and teach in India. And as well, I do medical mission work in Haiti. So in Haiti, one of the common conditions that we see there is called soil-transmitted helminthic infections. So these are infections that are caused by parasitic worms that we don't see in the United States. So there's sort of a whole category of diseases called tropical and neglected diseases that are more common in developing nations and third world countries, whereas for us in the United States, we don't see them anymore, quite frankly. The caveat being is that the world is actually getting much smaller. There's a lot more migration of people and as well uh, international travel. So in the United States, even though we've you know given so many people vaccines for measles, mumps, and rubella, there's kind of this anti-vaccination movement. People aren't vaccinating as much as they used to or should. And as a result, we're seeing people developing uh, mumps, for example, uh, outbreak here in Syracuse. Uh, there's an outbreak of measles, which occurred in uh, Disney World, which is out in California. Or is that Disneyland? Disneyland. Disneyland. A uh -huh. uh, big outbreak of measles in Disneyland. And again, we're seeing that as people are, you know, um, interacting more, we're seeing different proliferations of diseases that we might not have seen years ago. Yes, you mentioned, so like, for example, worms was a big section of your book. Another large section is devoted to infectious diarrhea. Why is that? So again, this is actually a good uh, reference guide as well as study guide for the medical students. So one of the things as medical students we have to learn about is diarrhea. So it's not really that sexy of a topic, but you have to look at diarrhea and ask yourself, is it bloody or non-bloody? And then what is the causative agent? Is it a diarrhea that's caused by a bacteria? Is it caused by a virus or is it caused by a parasite? You'll see about 15 different illustrations with a similar theme of someone sitting on a toilet with diarrhea. However, each one of the illustrations gives information as to what caused the diarrhea. So there's a type of E. coli that causes the outbreak of bloody diarrhea and one of the more recent outbreaks of that was at that Chipotle restaurant. So I drew a giant burrito on a toilet with diarrhea. And as well, there's a type of diarrhea that's caused by a parasite that's called Giardia or Giardiasis. And that's a diarrhea where the host, or I'm sorry, the reservoir of that parasite is thought to be the beaver. 
So they call that disease beaver fever. So in that case, I drew a beaver on a toilet having diarrhea. And again, I get very tongue-in-cheek with this, and I start thinking about, well, what rhymes with beaver? I was thinking Justin Bieber. So I drew a beaver that actually looks like Justin Bieber with the haircut and the tattoos. And then it kind of helps the student look at the illustration, recognize, oh, this is your diocese. It's carried by a beaver. Here's the sign and symptoms. Here's the treatment. So all these illustrations, as crazy or wacky as they are, each one provides a lot of information and memory retrieval cues for the medical student that's learning the disease, and then later for the physician that might be seeing a patient with this unique presentation of a disease that really we maybe see two or three times in our career, but need to know about it for that times that we do see it. All right. Well, thank you for coming in and talking about your new book. My guest has been Dr. Brian Kloss, an emergency physician from the Department of Emergency Medicine at Upstate. I'm Jim Howe for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, is beer a good recovery drink after you've run an ultra marathon? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're talking about an extreme problem that may affect extreme athletes and a medical study conducted by a physician at Upstate that looked at beer as a recovery beverage. With me in the studio is Dr. Jeremy Jocelyn. He's an emergency physician from Upstate and medical director for a variety of endurance events around the world, and he's also the associate chief medical officer for Upstate University Hospital. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, when I say endurance event, um, we're not talking about 5K fun runs. Right. So right. Tell, tell me about some of the endurance events you've been a part of. Yes. So I'm, I'm talking mostly about ultra marathons, um, which by definition is longer than a regular marathon. Um, but a lot of the events that I've worked over the last several years, uh, literally around the world, have been in the range of 150 to 200 miles. Over the course of days? Uh, often split up. Oh. Uh, there is a 100-mile race in the Florida Keys every year. Uh, that's held um, in May. And that's a you start and you run until you're finished. So all at once, uh, typically around 24 to 28 hours long. Uh, wow. Other races are, are split up and staged uh, five, six, seven days long. And I've read, I mean, these sorts of events have grown in popularity. There's more of them and the more people doing them, right? Absolutely, yep, yep. And just to be clear, you're not running them yourself. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you're there to provide the medical. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. these, these, uh, these athletes um, do need a watchful eye. Um, and, and several of these companies that put on these races have hired uh, physicians uh, from our, our hospital to, to provide that medical oversight and supervision uh, to help make sure that they come home safely. Well, what are some of the things that you see at these events? You say they need a watchful eye. What are you watching for? Yeah, so I, I think I break it up into what kinds of things can go wrong uh, with the physiology of an athlete who's, who's really pushing themselves 
Um, so that's things like uh, heat stroke or hyponatremia, which we're going to talk a little bit about. But then there's other things that just have to do with where the event is located. So we have we've worked events uh, in the Amazon jungle, and so there's a whole slew of problems that can come up because of all the creepy crawlies and the plants and it seems like everything wants to try to kill you there. Wow. Okay. So you have to be knowledgeable about that, but then also the medical stuff right. that goes along with it. So are these, um, are there like first aid tents along the course or? Yeah, we typically will bring a team uh, of medical personnel and, and just keep an eye on athletes. Uh, it's amazing what these athletes can do uh, on their own, and, and we're really there just to jump in uh, if, in case of emergencies or medical problems that pop up. So mostly it's, it's uh, we, we approach it strategically by placing uh, people with watchful eyes um, in strategic locations along the course of the event. And then if somebody has a problem, we try to be at the right place at the right time to find that find that person who's having the problem and deliver aid. Now, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the athletes that would do these kind of extreme events are, are pretty well prepared. They've right. been training for them for Absolutely. months. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. They, they do a lot of training. Um, uh, often, it's, it's funny, often I, I've run into athletes who I've seen at other events that have nothing to do with each other, but once you do one, you, you may get bit by the bug and want to do more, and... Um, but absolutely, you, you, athletes who do this have a lot of preparation. There's a lot of thought that goes into it. Often these events are self-sustained, meaning that you need to plan for your food and where you're going to sleep and clothes and all these things and bring them with you in a backpack as you're running. Wow. So, so there's a lot of strategy and thought that goes into this, a lot of preparation um, besides the training. And some, uh, I guess some pretty scientific thought goes into when to ingest water or right, energy, right, whatever. Exactly. Well, you mentioned hyponatremia. Right. What What is that? Yeah. So hyponatremia just means low sodium. Uh, and that's a condition that endurance athletes can get. Uh, typically an athlete who's, who's exerted themselves heavily for more than four to six hours uh, would be at risk for hyponatremia. So that's where the sodium or the salt level in the blood dips a little bit too low. And there's two main causes to that that we've we've really discovered. One is is just over drinking. So believe it or not, dehydration is not the biggest concern. It's overhydration. Huh. So so you feel hot and you want to drink, um, or you've heard advice that you need to drink a lot of water so you don't get dehydrated, and so you end up over drinking and you dilute the salt levels in your blood. That's one way. The other way that this happens, and and these are combined forces, so it's not one or the other typically. Uh, the other way is your body creates a, secretes a hormone in your brain called AVP when you're under exertion or when you're nauseous or when you have uh, heat stress. And that hormone tells your kidneys, lock it, lock it down, don't let the water out of your body, we need to conserve water. And so by conserving water and holding on to it and not urinating, you end up diluting yourself that way. So you're diluting your blood sodium by holding on to extra water and then you're over-diluting by drinking more water and adding to the problem. Wow. How often does this happen? Well, it, it used to happen quite a bit. There was one study that showed uh, 13 to 16% of athletes who finished one of these long races had this condition. Huh. And it is, it is probably the number one concern from a medical standpoint because this can turn into a life-threatening emergency. It can cause seizure. It can cause coma or death even. 
So it's potentially very dangerous. So right. Um, right. It, how would a how would an athlete or how would you as the physician watching, how would you know that this is going on? Yeah, so athletes um, who have this, um, well, they can have it and not have any symptoms at all if they have a, a low level of it, which is uh, concerning, but it's not an emergency because once you stop exerting yourself and rest, your body it corrects itself. Right. Okay. Um, but the, the athletes who we notice have confusion um, or altered mental status, as we say, those are the patients who we uh, will pull aside and do a more thorough evaluation to try to determine if that's what, what's going on. Is there a way to check and see whether they've had too much water? There is. So, so one of the first things we ask is, how much water are you drinking? And athletes will typically track that, monitor it, and so we'll, we'll get an idea. Um, but if they're confused, that's a medical emergency in this setting. Um, and so we'll, we'll dig deeper. Um, for many of our events, we'll actually bring a handheld lab device called an iStat analyzer where we can get a couple of drops of blood, put it in this little machine, wait uh, about one minute, and out comes a result with some electrolytes, including sodium. So we can actually test for it. So um, if you know that this is what's going on, do you give them sodium to fix it? Exactly. Oh, you do? Exactly. So yep. anything yeah. salty? or So, so we, can do, uh, we can do a concentrated IV solution that okay. has uh, 3% uh, saline. Uh, or uh, if we're in a place where we don't have access to that, we, um, we've used uh, chicken bouillon cubes dissolved in just a little bit of hot water if you've ever tasted them, they're very, very salty. Very There's salty. a lot of sodium packed into those. <laughs> Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jeremy Jocelyn, an emergency physician from Upstate. Um, he's been the medical director for several endurance events all over the world, and we're going to talk about a study he did looking at beer as a recovery beverage. So why beer, and how did you set this study up? Yeah, so, so this um, exercise-associated hyponatremia has been something that we've known about uh, for several years. and But over the last few years, it's began, become a, a topic of research really because it is such a true health threat to the endurance athlete. Um, and so part of this research is trying to elucidate what the causes are. Um, I mentioned AVP hypersecretion, mm -hmm. um, and, and that really is a problem. And so there's been some real good science looking at what causes AVP to be over-secreted, to, to, to be produced more than normal? And then what are some things that might turn off AVP uh, secretion in your brain? And one of the things that's been discovered is that, uh, or, or I should say, um, known in parallel, something we've known for a long time, is that when you drink alcohol, sometimes that makes you need to urinate. And the reason is, is because it, it directly affects this AVP release in your oh, brain. Huh. Right, so it actually turns it off. And that's what, what gives you the, the uh, need to urinate so much. And so uh, one problem is too much AVP with the hyponatremia. The other is turning off AVP. So we figured that if we, and there's been some, some anecdotal uh, stories floating around of athletes doing this um, and with good success. And so uh, because it really is a true health concern, we wanted to, to test it. Um, there was... A little bit of a balking at first because why why would we take this uh, medical condition and this true medical concern and this professional job that we're doing and introduce al drinking alcohol into it? Um, uh, you know that 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 makes a lot of people balk. But but in reality, a lot of athletes do 
enjoy having a, a beer, especially after a run. And so we, we found a venue where this was already happening. It was commonplace. Um, and we just applied some science to actually test the athletes to determine if their sodiums would be affected by their drinking the beer. Neat. So uh, when was this done and what's, what did you find? Yeah, so we, we did this uh, a couple of years ago uh, at a race in Florida that was the 100-mile uh, race that I mentioned. Um, and interestingly, what we and, and I should also point out that we went through a pretty rigorous IRB approval process um, where we, we had a very rigorous protocol. An IRB? Um, yeah, Institutional Review Board. So that's okay. when medical researchers are going, going to do a study, any study. Um, they, they put together the plan for the study, and they present it to a panel who independently and objectively looks at it to make sure that we're really doing the right research for the right reasons um, and that we're keeping uh, all these athletes' safety foremost with the research. Um, and so we put together a, a good plan it was approved, and we conducted this research a couple of years ago. What, what we found was that the athletes who were crossing the finish line actually didn't have hyponatremia at this event, which was a big surprise because, like I mentioned, previous studies have showed 13 to 16% of athletes who do an ultramarathon would have this condition. Um, and so we, we were somewhat surprised but interested and also relieved uh, and so it's a good thing for athletes that we found this. Uh, not a great thing if you're trying to do research on the su- right. subject, but, but a good thing for the athletes is that the incidence at this race for this year was zero. Huh. Okay. So maybe the word is getting out about how to avoid hyponatremia and not overdrink. Exactly. Or... That's, that's exactly what I think it is. We, we meaning uh, medical directors who do these kinds of events, have really been trying to educate the public and athletes to drink if you're thirsty. That's it. Bottom line, you don't need a formula. You don't need to do any calculations. You don't need to push yourself for fear of dehydration. The rule is you drink when you're thirsty. And we found that that actually works the best. Your body knows what it's doing. It'll make you thirsty if you need more water. Um, and so we, we believe that our educational efforts have been paying off. Certainly at all the events that I do, I do a talk before the event where I warn athletes about drinking too much. And we've really been pushing at this. So I'm really excited that, that this has sort of uh, fallen um, down to zero at this event. Um, and we're actually going to publish a paper about our findings. Well, what do you say to someone who asks about having a beer after an endurance event like that? Is it a good idea, bad idea? So, so personally, I think it's, if it's something that you've done before and it's enjoyable, I think it's probably a good idea. Um, but I don't have any medical research that to proves that, that just yet. <laughs> and there's no um, scientific, I mean, is it doing anything more for you or less for you than a big glass of water would do? Or Yeah, so, so there's, there's another component of it, which we didn't really touch on. But, but uh, when water, when you have an excess of water in your body and, and you... You have a beer and you find yourself having to urinate. Um, that flushes the kidneys a little bit, and so I also think that there's probably some additional benefit to that um, after after running an event or or any kind of endurance event. Again, I have no data to back that up yet. Uh, that's something that we're considering future studies to look at, um, but but possibly an additional benefit. So if it's something that you enjoy to do, I have no reason to tell you not to do it. Um, But I don't have any scientific evidence that says that athletes should start doing it if they're not already. All right. Well, I liked the advice you said about drink if you're thirsty, that your body knows what it's doing. Um, Do you have any other advice for people before 
during or after an event um, in terms of, I don't know, energy or protein or uh, carb ingestion? Yeah, um, it's, that's an interesting question I get asked a lot. My focus has really been on the emergency side of things. Um, and so I, I really don't generate a lot of advice. I, I don't follow a lot of the literature on how to optimize performance. Okay. Uh, my focus has been on keeping athletes safe from some of the biggest threats that are out there um, and trying to make sure everybody can go out, have a good time when they want to um, enjoy the, the wilderness if they're in the Amazon uh, or enjoy the, uh, the beaches in the sun if you're running an event in Florida. Um, but, but as far as optimization, I think there's a lot of other specialists out there that can give good advice. Well, good to know. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this. It's an interesting study, even yeah. though it didn't right. show you what you were looking for. But uh, anyway, thank you. My guest has been Dr. Jeremy Jocelyn. He's an emergency physician and medical director for a variety of endurance events around the world. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Tish Perlman is a poet from Ithaca, New York, who hosts and produces the public radio show Out of Bounds. Her most recent book is called Afterlife. I will read two of her poems. The first is a meditation about heartbeats. Here is Renegade Heart. I dig myself into that space where the erratic heart sings of no return, the top chamber going a million miles an hour off track while the other stays calmly in the moment. The host keeps walking. The host knows it is only a matter of time. The days of rejoicing spring clouds, they do not last forever. Yes, it's a warning call. The wind is up. Let's set the last thought free. Her second poem is a meditation about her mother's presence. Here is the ghost of my mother. I stepped very close to the edge, but since I could not locate you there, I went on with my life. Still, you seep in through an old tune, the smell of bourbon in the sea, the clinking of ice in a cocktail glass. You seep in with the apprehension that accompanies each new hour. I am still not sure how we are connected, both of us tethered to the unquiet hours, the waiting, the foreshadowing. Is your final thought still trying to reach us? I know little about your afterlife, only that we call out and sometimes you are there. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, 
we'll discuss cervical cancer screening methods. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.